You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Joshua chapter 24, verses 13 through 28. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the Jordan, or beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are a witness against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against you, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that we would see you rightly, that we would fear you, that we would worship you with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. We pray that now as we wrap up this book of Joshua, that we would obey you, most of all because of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight is a lower elementary night, first one in a while. So if you already have a sticker on and you want to head out for the first time this summer with Mr. Church and whomever else, y'all have fun. And parents, you can check out your children, I believe, in the fellowship hall after this service is over. Well, hello everyone. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to uh, after the service. Love to meet you and hear how you came to Christchurch or came to Albuquerque. Uh, We have done it. For the last, uh, the whole summer, we've taken the summer, spent 14 weeks working through the book of Joshua, and we are at the end. Next Sunday, we're going to take three weeks to kind of reset a bit. After finishing this book, before we get right back into the book of Luke in the fall, we want to reset to make sure that we're all on the same page with who we are, who we want to be as a church, uh, not in like a, a mission statement-y type of way, uh, but in following up with so many of the themes of Joshua that in a culture of increasingly, that increasingly likes to just keep its options open, we're going to think through a theme of committedness for three weeks. Uh, first, next Sunday, that God commits to his people. The following Sunday after that, that God's people commit to him. And then the third Sunday after that, God's people commit to each other. So then in this final week's wrap-up sermon in Joshua, this is, I think this Sunday is actually going to work like a pretty good transition into those three weeks because chapters 23 and chapter 24 of Joshua are Joshua's two final farewell sermons to the nation of Israel, his last speeches that he wants them to remember, that he wants them to apply, that he wants them to continue to embody after he is long dead and gone. We might say that these two addresses, these two sermons, are actually all about committedness. Or to put another way more specifically in the context here, these two sermons, or our one sermon tonight, is actually about obedience. So we're going to use these two chapters tonight to kind of turn the diamond of obedience, look at obedience from a certain or a couple different ways, and In fact, three different ways. We're going to think about obedience in three different ways. The importance of obedience, the motivation of obedience, and then thirdly, and most confusingly, the dilemma of obedience. So the importance, the motivation, and the dilemma of obedience. This is it, everyone. Let's let's wrap up this incredible book together. All right, the importance of obedience. In chapter 23, and if I didn't say this already, we're going to get through both chapters. You heard Ryan read just from chapter 24. We're going to go back a little bit. We didn't get to chapter 23 last week. So if you have your Bible in front of you and you've got chapter 23 open, in verse 1, we read this, that after, or a long long time afterward, which a long time after the nearly messy and uh, nuclear crisis at the Jordan River that we read about last week, after all of that crisis was averted, after that, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. So Joshua is old and gray. He doesn't know how much longer he has, and he reminds the people what they have experienced. 
In verse 3, he says, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised you. So we have seen over the past many weeks together how God has fought for his people, has delivered his people into a place of security and peace, into their inheritance, the land, that they might dwell in peace, that they might have an inheritance as God's son, a land to know and dwell him in peace and blessing. And then he gets to the meat of really what he wants to hit and to land in their hearts. if, If you are giving a final farewell address, your final instructions, a final sermon. You will be very careful and focused with your words. You want the things that you care about most to actually land. And so what is it that Joshua cares about most? Verse 6, therefore, because of all that, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Now this is almost verbatim what he commanded the people before they entered in the land, the land way back in chapter one, verse seven. So he is bookending his entire like teaching ministry with this command, to be strong and courageous, to obey the law of Moses not turning to the right or to the left. At the beginning of his life, he wants them to think about, at the beginning and the end of his life, he wants them to think about like the very, very small difference that a minuscule misjudgment in navigation heading can make like at sea. So if, if two ships depart on minuscule departures of a heading, they might look like they're running parallel for many hours, maybe a whole day or so. But by the end of the day, And certainly by the end of the week, these two ships will be miles apart, which is how, like, if you set off uh, from the south of England thinking you're going to New England, but you're off just a little bit, you suddenly end up in Virginia. That's a bit of a miss. Or maybe even not just going away from further or further away from where you thought you were heading, maybe even more life and death than that, not just New England to Virginia. My family drove from Durango to Ure a few weeks ago for the very first time. Have you driven on this road? Have you ever been on this windy, curvy, switchbacky road, sometimes climbing steep declines and then sometimes coming down very quickly with curves around and makes your palms sweat a little bit? So much of that road without any guardrails at all. Like, I don't care how many times If you're driving on this road, how many times your phone is buzzing in your pocket? You do not check the text messages on your phone when you're driving on that road. Why? Because if you are distracted just for a second, what is the consequence? Certain death from a text message. You're careful when you are driving, being careful not to depart from the road to the the left or to the right. Be careful, which Joshua says in verse 11. He will repeat the command that he gave to the two and a half eastern tribes in chapter 22. He says, be careful to love the Lord your God. Do not depart from the law of Moses. Be careful turning not to the left or to the right. Be careful to love God. I briefly mentioned this last week, but I think too often we have a very modern understanding of love, that it is something that happens to us, that we are merely passive recipients of it. 
It is, emo- it is an emotion that happens passively. What, how do we say that, what, how do we get into a romantic situation? We fall in love, like whoops, accidentally, fell into the pit. Or we can equally say we fell out of love. We don't have any control of it, over it. It's like a lightning bolt, like you're just walking along and then suddenly like bam, like love at first sight, we say. Now, even though I know of love at first sight romances, maybe some even in this room that have resulted in flourishing marriages, the flourishing part does not come because of the lightning bolt at the beginning, not because of some emotion that happens to you. The flourishing part is actually something that we want to begin to unpack at our marriage seminar uh, in two weeks and the subsequent 10-week core class that we're going to think about in marriage, that marriage is actually just two selfish people, two self-worshipping people who then commit to each other. Or, in Paul Tripp's words, it is when two sinners say, I do. And so a flourishing marriage of deepening love only comes how? With something with, that like passively hits you? A flourishing marriage actually comes from intentionality. Careful intentionality of becoming increasingly aware of the, the giant wedges in a marriage that threaten to divide one fleshness. But even more wisely, even more carefully, becoming increasingly aware of the very tiny splinters that can get infected, that can fester, and then can cause division of carefully tending the garden, of watering and cultivating, but also being aware of the weeds, the insects, the rodents who would destroy. Joshua's final words, his last sermon to Israel, his words are imploring, are warning Israel to be aware of the exact same things for their love of God. Be careful, be intentional. Love is something that is cultivated, not passively received. You do not stumble into love for God. You do not stumble into holiness. You do not stumble into obedience for God. You must walk. You must drive on the road with carefulness. You must drive with intentionality to obey the law of God, both hands on the wheel, not being distracted by text messages. You must be careful to care about the word of God, to love the Lord your God. Now, this doesn't make one's love for God any more inauthentic, any more than like caring to plan for or schedule time to, for me to like want to hang out with Marcy is inauthentic. That we are coming up on our 17th wedding anniversary, and yet there are still so many things that I do not know about her that are preventing me from loving her as well as I could. In the same way, we must be careful to know him. It would actually be very difficult for me to actually love Marcy well if I was committed to the idea that she was a redhead. Or she just tilted her head. She hated that. Or if she, like, I was committed to the idea that, like, she loved riding motorcycles. Or she really was into, like, swimming with sea tortoises or something. Now, this is what I was committed to, this idea of her, That is not true. That is not who she is. None of those things. That is not my wife. In order to obey God, you must actually know him. You must actually know what he wants. And so in the same way, are you planning? Are you carefully scheduling time in your days to know him? To actually know him, who he is, to actually know what he wants. 
He has spoken to us clearly in his word. Do you have a plan for reading it, for digesting, for being nourished by God's word in your life? If you were at our member meeting on Sunday, Michael led us through praying through Psalm 23, the same psalm that we used tonight for our profession of faith, and I'm sure he's going to share some of this for all of us in the future, but he's already been influencing us as pastors in how we pray. But in using a book that maybe some of you have read, Praying the Bible, uh, Michael recently shared a good illustration with us that imagine that if you go to a, like an hour-long coffee with a celebrity that you admire, Imagine you've got this hour-long time, uninterrupted time with some actor, some musician, some athlete, some artist, some author that you admire. And at this hour-long coffee, you get to ask this person anything that you want to get to know this person. But now imagine that the next week, you get to do it again. You get to meet with that same person for another hour. But at that same meeting, then you just ask the exact same questions that you asked last week. And then next week, you do it again. And you ask the exact same questions. No matter how much you admire that person, their excellence in their fields, no matter how dynamic their personality, whatever, you get pretty bored pretty quick with the same old coffees, days or weeks in a row, having the same exact conversations. But what if, in varying your conversations and questions, you got to continually and then more deeply know this person? What if, by using the scriptures like we did on Sunday at our member meeting last week through Psalm 23, you both got to more closely understand the character of God by how he describes himself, not necessarily how you imagine him to be, Or if you pray, not just bringing requests of immediate need, but in praying his word, you bring requests that maybe he actually wants for you, not necessarily to give you things, but to give you himself. All of these things take carefulness, take intentionality to know to love the Lord your God. And get this, all of this kind of obedience, all of this obedience actually takes strength. Verse 6 Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law. Now, I've used this illustration a thousand times, but if you decide that you want to get stronger or to get in better shape, uh, and you've heard of like this CrossFit thing, and you decide, all right, I want to get in better shape, I'm going to go to CrossFit tomorrow, and you go for the very, very first time, and what happens? It's absolutely the worst, the worst. You come home, and you look in the mirror, and you think, well, shoot, it didn't work. It didn't work, and much worse than that, tomorrow morning, not only do you not feel better, healthier, or stronger, you can barely walk. It's worse than had you never gone in the first place. But what do we intuitively know about physical strength? That it only comes from time, from longevity, from perseverance and commitment. It comes from breaking muscles down so that they might grow back stronger. And growing in spiritual strength is more than just time. It is more than just longevity and perseverance and commitment, but it is not less. I think many of us kind of just assume that I will love God more next year. I don't know why, but I assume I will. I think many of us just kind of run the software of our Christianity like a Uh, behind the scenes like Norton antivirus software running on our computers. Running in the background, this Christianity thing is, the glory of God is, running in the background, but mostly ignorable. It's there to spring into action when and if it's needed, but mostly unnoticed for most of my everyday. 
Joshua is saying, bring it all. Bring the glory of God, bring the knowledge and the love of God up to the very forefront of your heart, not just in the background running unnoticed, so that in growing strength we might actually obey what God wants for us, that we might act and react with greater patience and gentleness, that we might, in moments of temptation to use our bodies in all kinds of ways of self-worship or laziness, we might choose deeper joy, that in, my, in moments of temptation to use our time in all sorts of ways of self-worship or laziness, we might actually choose deeper joy, that we might choose the Lord, we, that we might obey the Lord, that, verse 8, we might cling to the Lord. This image that Joshua is giving, here, giving us here in 23.8, the picture maybe being that of two lovers walking tightly arm in arm, clinging to one another, leaving no cracks for other lovers or other gods, which is actually the point behind the instruction in verse 7 not to intermarry outside of the people of Israel. Joshua is not giving some command to like preserve some kind of ethnic purity or something. After all, Rahab had married into Israel. Moses had married an Ethiopian wife. What God and what Joshua is warning against is inviting cracks for other lovers. Inviting, going after ways to intentionally bring wedges Cracks for other gods. I love Kathy Keller's wisdom against dating or marrying those who are not Christians. She says there are only two options, and only two. If one Christian dates or marries another or someone who's not a Christian, there are only two options. That because Jesus gets the downtown of your heart, and because the unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse does not share that same love for Christ, the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the spouse will necessarily get sent out to the suburbs. Jesus gets the downtown, this person doesn't share the downtown, this person gets sent out to the suburbs. Or more likely, because your unbelieving boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse gets the downtown of your heart, Jesus necessarily gets sent out into the suburbs. Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians 6 is illustrating the same thing of two different animals, say a donkey or an ox, put together under one yoke to pull a wagon. And because of their different strengths, because of their different temperaments, because of their different expectations, they will necessarily frustrate one another as they pull. They will necessarily, uh, because of their frustration, invite division, invite pulling in separate directions. And so Joshua says, you must commit you must be careful. You must intentionally set the glory of God, the obedience of God in the forefront of your heart, the forefront of your soul, your strength and your mind, the forefront of your time and your relationships and in your priorities or what you will not obey. You won't do it. And when that happens, when you do not obey the Lord, what happens? Verse 12, well, if you turn your back and you cling to, again, the same word of like arm in arm, cling to the remnant of the, these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. In other words... It will, for Israel, be as bad as it once was good. All of the blessing and the peace 
and the security that they experienced will not only just go away, not back to like a net neutral state, but a horribly oppressive state. If you turn from the Lord, inviting other gods into the downtown of your heart, the Lord will rightly bring judgment. If, verse 16, you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. Not because he is out of control, not because he is flying off the handle and overly emotional. He is not overreacting, but he is rightly reacting. The eternal sin against an eternal God brings eternal judgment. Life and death is at stake here for Israel. So this is the importance of obedience. Life and death. Will Israel stay on the mountain road, or will they, by checking their text messages, go careening off the mountain into the canyon below? Or with Jesus' imagery of the same road, it is a narrow road and not many will enter by it. This is what's at stake. This is why obedience is so important. Life and death eternally is at stake. So that should be motivation enough, but if that is the importance, now let's think through deeper motivation. What is then the motivation to obey? Life and death ought to be enough motivation, but considering uh, Israel's hypothetical future of like the nations becoming like a whip and thorns in their eyes, but in Joshua's second and final farewell sermon, now in chapter 24, another sermon with all of Israel again gathered, Joshua this time spends more time not necessarily on their hypothetical future, but this time in Israel's past and then her present. It's not just that there are good or bad consequences for obedience. In the first half of chapter 24, Joshua reminds Israel of all that God has done for her. He relives the entire story of Genesis throughout the narrative sections of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and up to right where they are in their history and this point in the book of Joshua in the land. Go back and read this section this week and maybe even read it out loud and emphasize every time you read the first person singular, this word I. God is just saying I, I, I. From the time of Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joshua, I took your father, Abraham, and I led him. I sent Moses and Aaron. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I gave the Canaanites into your hand. And then finishing the whole thing in verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities you had not built, and now you dwell in them. The experience and the blessing and the peace and the comfort and the wealth that you are experiencing experiencing now, you had nothing to do with. I did it all. God has shown himself not to only be a God of power. He is a God of might. He is stronger and bigger and better than all the other gods, but he is not just a God of strength and power, a God who demands our worship, though he is right to do so. More than that, he is a God of covenantal love of patience, of kindness. He has not just broken his people out of the jails that once held them. He is continually wooing his people, inviting them to not just wander out, now no longer free of bondage or free with no expectation, but he is freeing them to be who they were created to be. 
He is freeing his people to now finally and fully live the ideal human life, the life of knowing God and serving him. He has released them. He has released them from serving the gods of Egypt, from serving Pharaoh, so that now they might live the ideal flourishing human life of serving God, of knowing him, a life of meaning, purpose, freedom, and love. Because here's the motivation of obedience. The life of living as God's people is one of reflective response, of thoughtful thankfulness, not just of present fear of the future. Put another way, the motivation for present obedience is in response to the past action of God, to the past and present love of God. That is, the the Christian faith is a faith. We have not, I think, none of us in this room seen the risen Lord Jesus, but it is a faith that is grounded in reality, grounded in history. Unlike religions based in untestable stories of mythologies like that of the Greeks or the Romans or of modern Hinduism, unlike religions like Mormonism, who with every passing year of historical or archaeological research further discredits its claims, every year of research for the historic Christian understanding of the Bible brings further confirmation. And for those things that can't be confirmed, we have every reason to believe if they can be confirmed, they will be confirmed. Like for the entire Enlightenment era, there was no trace of the city of Nineveh, causing skeptics to just for hundreds of years assume that everything in the book of Jonah was just one giant myth until Nineveh was found in 1846 under present-day Mosul, Iraq. And indeed, Paul says that our entire faith and existence as Christians depends upon the very historic reality of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not raised, then our faith is in vain. It is pointless, and we should be pitied as gullible idiots. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, as certainly as God brought Israel out of Egypt, then the entire package deal of the universe comes with it. The divine and the supernatural are real because people do not come back from the dead after three days. It proves that Jesus says who he was. And then Paul's argument in Romans 8.32 is true as well, that he who did not spare his own son, God, who gave us his son to the point of death, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has done the hard part of bringing the forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ, what in the world makes us think that he will not finish the job? Finish the job of bringing us finally and fully into the character of Jesus. It is the love of God which redeemed us, that saved us, that is now wooing us into greater obedience. And this actually now gets us into our last point. Obedience is important because it is life and death. Obedience is motivated because it it comes in response to the salvation and the wooing love of God into the character of Christ. And yet there's a problem. There's a problem here in all of the book of Joshua. There's a problem here at the end of chapter 24 that Israel does not obey. We do not obey. So often the God of heaven and earth is just the ignorable Norton antivirus software running in the background of our hearts. We sin and we give ourselves to all kinds of other gods. So what? 
we're doomed and without hope. Our lives, personally, individually, and corporately together as a church are essentially, I think if we're reading Joshua clearly, we are doomed to careen off into the canyon below. It sure seems like this is what Joshua thinks of the people and might think of us. So let's now think through, finally, in wrapping up this entire book, the dilemma of obedience. This is certainly a dilemma. In verse 14, Now therefore, chapter 24, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says that Israel is going to be tempted with the gods of their ancestral past, and they will be tempted by the gods of their geographic and cultural present. So you can choose this, or you can choose that, Israel, but as for me, my family, this is what we're doing. We're serving the Lord our God. Joshua is not encouraging them to abandon the Lord for these other gods. He's showing the utter foolishness for not doing what he's going to do. These gods didn't do anything for you. They did not bring you out of Egypt. What are they? Nothing. They will not fulfill the promises that, they, that you think they offer. The gods of a bygone and nostalgic past did not bring you out of slavery. The God of glory, he has redeemed you. The gods of a provocative and transgressive present, they have not saved you. The God of holiness and of an ordered nature, he is the one who has loved you and has now given you meaning and purpose. And so here's what my family's doing. This is serious business, everyone. Do not make this commitment to the Lord if you do not mean it, but here's what we are doing. We are serving God. And the verb tense here is showing continuous action. We will serve, and so what he is saying here is that we have served, we are serving, and we will serve the Lord. We have, we are, and we will. This is our life, serving God. And the people say, yes, us too. We will too. But in verse 19, Joshua said to the people, nope, you're not able. You're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and you serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after, doing, after having done you good. Joshua knows the people. And perhaps more importantly, he knows the character of a holy God. He knows what will happen to the people if and when they completely reject him. He's trying to tell them, don't just do this without thinking. He's trying to tell them, in Jesus' words, count the cost before you do something that is, you're going to regret. This, serving the Lord, is not as easy as you think it is. In fact, Israel, worshiping and serving the Lord is darn near impossible, which is actually the theology of the entire Bible. In Romans 3, Paul, quoting from the Psalms, argues that among both Jew or Greek, or in Joshua's terms, Paul might argue that among the people of Israel or among the people of Canaan or of the Amorites, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one who has ever lived past, present, or future understands or seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. All people, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says, quoting from the Psalms, about all humanity, about Jew and Greek. Because here is what the book of Joshua is all about. The book of Joshua is about our strong and courageous action, is about our strong and courageous obedience. The book of Joshua is a call to action because of who God is and what God has done. But more than that, the book of Joshua is about the strong and courageous action of the one, of another coming Joshua who could never, or who did what we could never do. The book of Joshua, though it is a call to action, is actually a call to rest, to rest in the land because of who Jesus is and what he has done. I did not say that the book of Joshua then is a call to laziness, is a call to passivity. I did not say that the book of Joshua is a call to spiritual indifference. But here's the thing about that narrow road, the gate by which Jesus said, very, very few will enter. Very few will enter it because of the distraction. The gate itself is only as wide as Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus himself calls himself the gate. He says, I am the door that all who enter by me will be saved and will find pasture. My greatest fear in this last sermon in the book of Joshua is for to like drum up for ourselves like some high school football team. Like we, before we, after we do this, we, we use these little cups here as like spiritual Red Bulls. And then we like grab each other's shoulders and like crack foreheads and stuff and like, yes, let's go out and do it. We can get out there. We can finally take things more seriously for God than we have in our past. We can, as a serious church, take things more seriously than all those other Christians who don't. The question is, in sermons like those, did Jesus really have to die to preach a sermon like that? That is, up until this point, everything I've said in the past 30 minutes or so, most of, most of it could be preached in a Jewish synagogue. If we just stay on this side of the cross of Christ, in this side of the coming of Christ, on this side in Israel's history, this could be a very good Jewish sermon. But this is a Christian church, and I am a Christian preacher. And Jesus Christ must have died on the the cross. Jesus Christ must have been raised from the grave for any of this book of Joshua to make sense. I recently read a reflection by one author who said, I remember hearing sermons with no distinction between the law and the gospel and getting a conviction high. 
A sermon was awesome if I got super convicted and called out. Like, the more convicted I felt, the more awesome I felt at the same time. I think, hey, I haven't been doing this thing. I need to pump up my faith so I'll be really on fire for God so I can do the thing. But there was no gospel. And that's why it was never sustainable. We spent months a few years ago in the Ten Commandments and thinking about the law in Exodus, and we thought about the law of try harder or do better, the law of obey, obey, obey. All of that is like a tank of gasoline. A tank of gasoline is a good gift, but it has no inherent life. It has no inherent combustion capabilities in and of itself. And instead of using the gift rightly, we often take the gift of the law and we use it for arson, burning down others with their failure, dousing ourselves with a new pumped-up conviction, leading to failure all over again and again and again and again. Disappointment and failure and shame over and over and over again. But instead, the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, the new Joshua, the true Israel, has come to fulfill the law. That as we read the Old Testament, we see this like, it's like when we're reading the book of Joshua, it's like this white sheet is up here on the stage and we see this uh, dim silhouette behind on the sheet. And then as we continue to read and we continue to read, the silhouette gets clearer and clearer as Jesus, the God-man, gets closer and closer to the sheet. And then the Son of God who would receive his inheritance through his righteous and his never straying to the left or to the right obedience, and having received and won a kingdom for himself that by then uniting his adopted brothers and sisters to himself by faith, he invites them into enjoying what is his as his co-heirs when he bursts through the sheet. He like walks through it, and we see him clearly for who he is. The shadow becomes reality. He bursts from the grave and says, here is the glory Here is the holiness of God. Be united to me that you might have life. Here is the love, the grace, the kindness, the patience of God. Be united to me that you might be changed. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. In order that what? That we might now finally live fully and freely in the kingdom of peace which he has won for us. That now, along with the gasoline that had no inherent life in and of itself, it had no mechanism of self-combustion, he takes out our cold and dead hearts and replaces it with this roaring engine. That now, with the gasoline of the law, that now, with the work of his spirit, that now, by his death and resurrection on our behalf, he creates life that can go somewhere, that can do something. And so the order of obedience and acceptance makes all the difference in the world. If we keep pumping ourselves up, we can do it. I obey, and therefore I am accepted. We can do it, everyone. Let's obey so that God will be happy with us. We will keep spinning on the stationary bike of exhaustion, of frustration, and of no actual movement. It doesn't go anywhere. But if we rest in the, I am accepted, We are accepted by the love of God for us in Christ. Now I obey. Now that does something. 
There is peace, there is life, there is inside-out, long-term and sustainable, lasting transformation. The finished work of Christ, the book of Joshua, that is an actual Christian sermon, is more about being and less about doing. About being. Resting. Being one who is united to Jesus instead of just doing that we might be united to him. Not working to offer an imperfect righteousness to God, but instead receiving a perfect righteousness from God. Less of, I want to do like that because I know I ought, and more, I want to be like that because I know I'm loved. Now again, don't hear me wrong and say, because Jesus has done it for me and brought the forgiveness of sins, now my life does not matter. My day does not matter. The next hour does not matter. I can live however I'd like without any expectation. Everything that we've thought about for the past 14 weeks is still true. That we must be careful to know God. We must be careful to love God and to walk with him. The strength and courage, strength and courage are required to want what God wants and to confront what God wants to be confronted. And yet, the dilemma of obedience is this. Absolute obedience is required, and we do not obey absolutely. Here, at the end of the book, Israel renews their covenant with God. They assure Joshua in verse 24, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. And there Joshua then puts up a giant stone that he says will be a witness against us. This stone is to be a a memorial to show and remind the people of what they promised to Joshua, what they promised to God that day, to remind future generations of that day. And yet, within two generations, that stone must have just been an annoying reminder, a hateful, repulsive reminder of what that generation's fathers or grandfathers must have said. Two generations from here, we are squarely into the book of Judges, where Israel has begun their long, slow descent into the utter and total rejection of God. And yet we also have a stone as a witness against us. But our stone, rather than reminding us of our commitment to serve and to obey God, reminds us of the glorious victory of Jesus' unwavering commitment to serve and to obey God. Joshua promised Israel that in the day that they reject God, he said, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and a thorn on your eyes. And this is exactly the kind of curse that Jesus would take upon himself for Israel and for you and for me. Whips on his side, thorns in his eyes. And yet death and curse could not hold him or separate him, could not separate us from the love of God. It is by his stripes that we have been healed, the whip on his side that has brought us peace. And that life and blessing are now not withheld from those who would unite themselves to him by faith. Resting, in their acceptance, and now moving in obedience. I quoted from Philippians 3 a few weeks ago to wrap up another Joshua sermon, but I'm just convinced that like Philippians, the book of Philippians, specifically Philippians 3, is like the best distillation of the entire book of Joshua. Maybe you'd read Philippians 3 several times this week, but Paul writes this, and I'll close us with this. Paul says, if 
anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. Just let me tell you. I've been circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that what? In order that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, a righteousness that he just said was blameless, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, by any careful, deliberate, intentional means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These are life and death matters that we're dealing with here, of spiritual and eternal weight and glory, but Jesus offers himself. And so to use Paul's words, Let's make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we might see you clearly, that we might know your glory, that we might understand uh, the right fear of you, reverence of you, not because you are so bad, but because you are so good. And in light of your holiness, we are miserable, self-worshipping, self-satisfied people. Help us to see you more clearly. And having done so, help us to love what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus even more. Help us to rest in him. Help us to trust him. Help us to respond to him. Might the glory and the love of Jesus now might become uh, not unnoticed, not forgettable, not running in the background of our hearts and our minds, but at the very forefront. We pray that we might make all of this our own because you, Lord Jesus, have made us your own. We pray for these things, for your glory, for our deepening joy in all of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.